6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Job, chapters 38 through 40. Verse 28, hath the rain a father? Or who hath begotten the drops of dew? It speaks metaphorically here. Out of whose womb come the ice and the hoary frost of heaven? Who gendered it? The waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. By the way, something you need to know. You know, if you study physics, you discover that almost everything expands when it gets hot and contracts when it's cold. If you have an iron bar and measure it at one temperature, and you measure it at a higher temperature, slightly longer. Things expand when they get hot. That's why they have cracks in the bridge, you know, in bridges, you know, so, and, and you, 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 when you have construction, you leave gaps to allow for expansion or contraction, whatever, right? Everything in the universe, there's a couple of exceptions that go the other way. Um, but there's a weird exception. It's called water. Because water expands when it freezes. And it doesn't do it linear, it does it in a very peculiar curve. If it didn't, life would be impossible. Life, uh, ice is an exception to all the typical rules of, of uh, physical chemistry. Because ice, when it freezes, expands, therefore it floats, therefore rivers freeze from the top down, therefore you have fish that can live through the winter, and so on. It's an exception. It's like a footnote in, the, in, in God's laws. It's interesting. And a strange, strange exception. Verse 31. Canst thou... Oh, this one, I love this one. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Now, most of us recognize Orion as that, it's that constellation up there. We often joke that he's the Irish hunter, Orion. Yeah. But anyway, he's a, and that's just a label for a collection of stars. Constellations are simply labels we give to groups of stars. And we, they have characteristic rela- patterns so we can we use them geographically. Such and such is just north of Orion or something. We can find our way around. Just, they're convenient labels. The Pleiades, the seven sisters, as it's sometimes called, is a group of stars you can spot because there's a conspicuous little seven grouping. Unless you have good eyes or binoculars, you find there's more than seven there. But they're classically known as the seven sisters. Or more properly, the Pleiades. And Orion is another constellation that most of us know. But here's what's interesting, and a lot of people love these two because Jesus mentioned in the book of Job. Well, there's more to it than that. God says, can you bind the sweet influences of Orion and the Pleiades? You'll discover something if you're an astronomer or an astrophysicist and you study the stars, you'll quickly discover that those constellations are not really groups of stars. They just look like they are because some of those stars are very close and some are very far away. They're not really grouped the way they look because we're just seeing, it's like a crowd, we're seeing a group. They're not necessarily physically grouped. You with me? They're they're, they're, dis- they're spread by distances that are enormous between the members of that group. So it just looks like a group from where we are. There are two exceptions to that 
in the heavens, where the stars are gravitationally connected. The Pleiades and Orion. And I was stunned when an astronomer pointed that out to me. Because that's exactly what he's saying. Can you bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades or loose the the bands of Orion? How on earth did Job know that? Or did the writer of this book know that? No, God did. And he's he's, he's got the floor here. Then he goes on, verse 32. Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season? Or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? The Maseroth, it's amazing how many commentators haven't done their homework. They don't know what the Maseroth means. They make, they make a few guesses. The Maseroth is the Hebrew term for what you and I would call the Zodiac. And what's that all about? The sun has an apparent path through the sky, through the air. And that apparent path is called the ecliptic. Fifteen degrees on either side of that, one hour on either side of that, so to speak, there's a band of convenience. Within that band, there are 12 groups of stars that have names. We know those names from the secular world. What's astonishing is the names are the same throughout all cultures on the planet Earth in the secular world. They go by different languages, but they're they're essentially the same legends and same stories, pretty much. What's interesting is they all date back to the Tower of Babel. What's even more interesting is they had names before Babel. We are familiar with the corruption of those names throughout pagan history. We use pagan names because they're convenient. If you you want to tell us, if you're looking for uh, a star, it's in the constellation of such and such, you, uh, 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 someone's interested, you know, it's a stargazer, knows exactly where to look by the hour angle, the declination, and so on. Well, what's interesting, you all have, may have attended planetarium shows in which they try to tell you that, well, those, you know, here's, here's the Big Dipper. You know, that, that was what, that's called the bear, the Big Bear. Or be, what's a better example is Cassiopeia. It looks like a bent W up there. Well, that's the lady chained in the chair. And they try to tell you that those, those, those names are legends that the ancients inferred by the arrangement of the stars and nothing could be sillier because those, in no way does that bent W look like a lady sitting in a chair. You follow me? They just have, they just have passed on traditions not knowing the origin. What you need to know in each of these clusters of stars is the names of the stars in the order of their brightness. And you need to know the names in Hebrew. If you can't find the Hebrew names, you can find the typically the Arabic names and make some guesses of how it fits together. And you discover something interesting. The, or, the names of the stars in the order of brightness suggest a story. The story can be embodied in a, in a picture that is associated with a group of stars. But it's not because of the arrangement. It's because of the names of the stars in the order of brightness. Now... You discover, when you look at the 12 constellations, you discover that they portray the plan of God from Virgo, the virgin birth, to Leo, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you need to know the names. Why does Virgo, it's a virgin, and she's carrying an ear of corn in one hand? And and, and, and you remember what Christ said? And, and how is the virgin associated with an infant? 
is a virgin birth. It gets complicated. I won't try to go through the whole thing. We have a briefing package called Signs in the Heavens. A number of the great scholars, E.W. Bullinger, J.A. Seiss, and two or three others, have written books on this in the past. We put a synthesis together and did a briefing package on it, if you're interested in this area. And, uh, but it, it's interesting. There is a widespread belief among the Persians and others that the, the Matzeroth was used to teach the children God's plan long before the Tower of Babel. What happened at Babel is that got corrupted with pagan relabeling. And that's what we're all victims of. Follow me? It also turns out those 12 constellations are identified with the 12 tribes of Israel. And the standards are associated with that. With, with the Judah, the lion of the, Judah's path was the lion, and uh, Reuben the man, Ephraim the ox, and Daniel, and so forth. And, and, uh, so, uh, there's, there's a lot of going, a lot, a lot of things going on here about the Metzeroth, which is the Hebrew term for the zodiac. Don't misunderstand. We're not talking astrology here. We're not talking that kind of thing. We're talking, uh, just the ancient background of the names of those groupings. Anyway, let's move on. We're down to verse 33. God challenged you, Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? Canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds, that abundance of waters may come to thee? Okay, in other words, can you change the weather? Yeah. Canst thou send lightnings that they may go and say unto thee, Where? Here we are. Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts? Who hath given understanding to the heart? God's asking him questions, putting him on the spot. See, he even challenges us to research man's ability to do research. That's what he's saying. Where did the brain come from? Is it sort of the equivalent thing? Who designed the language and the machinery that makes up our DNA? These are the kinds of questions that are being thrown at Job here. Verse 37, who can number the clouds in wisdom or who can stay the bottles of heaven when the dust groweth into hardness and the clods cleave fast together? In other words, who waters the desert when it needs it? So forth. Now the next three verses I suggest probably belong really to the next chapter because he changes subjects here and goes in about who feeds the animals? Who feeds the animals? <laughs> this is almost humorous the way God is, is poking Job here. He says, will you hunt prey for the lion? Or fill the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and abide uh, in, in, in the covert to lie in wait? Who provideth for the raven his food? When his young ones cry unto God, they wander for lack of meat. See, God supplies their needs. God preserves the species. Man destroys them. See, man gets on the scene. They be, these species become extinct. Job 39 continues. Now he's going to talk about obstetrical care. Of the animals. He says, Knowest the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Canst thou mark when the hinds do calve? Canst thou number the months that they fulfill? Knowest thou the time when they bring forth? They bow themselves, they bring forth their young ones, they cast out their sorrows. The young ones are in good liking, they grow up with corn, they go forth and they return not unto them. By the way, one thing I'm sparing you, because we, we, I don't think it's that fruitful, the Hebrew in Job is very difficult. A number of great scholars have retranslated slightly, and there's some, di- there's some discussion about some of the phrasing and so forth. It can mean slightly different things. So understand that some of the Hebrew, it's very early Hebrew. See, this is the oldest book in the Bible, Job is. And so there are some, some uh, 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 interesting difference of opinion about subtleties. I've, I've spared you all that because they're not consequential, in my opinion, about most things here. There's a few I'll show you here in a minute, but, but uh, 
Uh, anyway, let's go on. So if certain phrasing seems a little awkward, part of it, it's poetry and it's written in another language, so it's, tr- translation is difficult. Verse 5. See, God is going to express his delight in diversity. He says, Who hath sent out the wild ass free? Or who hath loosed the bands of the wild ass? Whose house I have made the wilderness, and whose barren land his dwellings, who scorneth the multitude of the city, neither regardeth he the crying of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture, and he searcheth after every green thing. He's alluding here to the personality of the, the donkey. He likes to be the wild, the wild ass is always away from the city, out in the wilderness. That's where he's happy, away from people. Shows a lot of judgment, I think, maybe. But God's saying, who gave him this diversity? Who gave him these instincts? God did, for his own pleasures, is the implied answer here. Verse 9. Then we have, will the unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by the group? You know, they always say, don't play leapfrog with a unicorn, right? Okay. No? Okay. Sorry. I had to work that in. The word unicorn is an unfortunate translation. It comes from the, the, the Septuagint and the, the Vulgate, but it, uh, it, uh, the, he, the word in the Hebrew is riem, and it is widely recognized by modern scholarship as a reference to the uroks or the wild ox, which inhabited the Middle East and other regions, but has been extinct since about 1625. So it's, a, it's not a unicorn in spite of the colorful implications that might have. It's a, it's, it's a, the Hebrew term for a, a wild ox. And it goes on, Canst thou bind him with his band in the furrow? Will he harrow the valleys after thee? Wilt thou trust him because his strength is great? Or wilt thou leave thy labor to him? Wilt thou believe him that he will bring home thy seed and gather into thy barn? <laughs> this is, you know, obviously God is being facetious here. I love this. You get some insight here. See, the untamable nature of this creature is what's in reference here. And that was given to him by God. And man can neither explain it or change it. Some of you girls know husbands can be like that at times. Right? Verse 13. Gavest thou the goodly wings unto the peacocks, or the wings and feathers unto the ostrich? Now he gets into the ostrich. This is kind of fun stuff. God addresses the apparent stupidity of the ostrich, and God takes the blame for it. That's what's kind of amusing. He's going to make fun of the ostrich. But he also points out he made it, he's that way because I made him that way. It's got to be one of the most humorous passages in Scripture. Let's jump in, verse 14. Speaking of the ostrich, which leaves her eggs in the earth and warmeth them in the dust and forgetteth that the foot may crush them or that the wild beast may break them. She is hardened against her young ones as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without fear because God hath deprived her of wisdom. Neither hath he imparted to her understanding. What time she lifteth up herself on high, she scorneth the horse and his rider. In other words, she can outrun the horse. They're clocked at over 40 miles an hour. Ostrich. And, uh, and yet she leaves her eggs out in the open. So not to take care of his young, but see, God seems to like it that way. For whatever, he did it for his pleasure. That's, his, that's, that's God's point here. See, there's many animals, there are many animals that, among others, point to God's sense of humor. Have you ever visited Australia and looked at a duck-billed platypus? It looks like it's assembled from spare parts that were left over. <laughs> it is the weirdest creature you've ever seen. And the camel. <laughs> You know, they always joke, a camel was a horse designed by a committee. You know? <laughs> Those of you who have been in the defense industry say, no, no, an elephant is a camel designed to mill spec. You know? <laughs> so. <laughs> then he goes into a poem on the horse. And this is, anyone that loves horses loves this poem because he really captures the horse. Verse 19, 
Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? Canst thou make him afraid as a grasshopper? The glory of his nostrils is terrible. He paweth in the valley. He rejoiceth in his strength. He goeth on to meet the armed men. He mocketh at fear. He is not affrighted. Neither turneth he back from the sword. The quiver rattleth against him, the glittering spear and the shield. He swalloweth the ground with a fierceness and rage. Neither believeth he that it is the sound of the trumpet. He, he saith among the trumpets, Ha ha! And he smelleth the battle afar off and the thunder of the captains and the shouting. This is the horse. Fearless, competitive. He's been extolled in poetry uh, in the history of man, but rarely as elegant as God himself describes him here. The unique character of the horse. Loving conflict, loving competition. Now he goes on to address what is typically called the hawk and the eagle. It's probably a different kind of vulture than the, the eagle as we think of it, but not let that go on here. Doth the hawk fly by wisdom? And stretch her wings towards the south. Does the eagle mount up at thy command and make her nest on high? She dwelleth and abideth on a rock, upon the crag of a rock, and upon the strong place. From thence she seeketh the prey, and her eyes behold afar off. Her young ones also suck up blood, and the slain are there. There she. So, you know, there's a lot of emphasis here on the provision for animals. Um, if we were doing, uh, if we were do, using graphics in here, I would be tempted to, 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 to deviate here a little. Talking about the, the golden plover, I was fascinated by this discovery. A little tiny bird weighs about 120 grams. Flies from Alaska to Hawaii every year. Now, if you do the arithmetic, he can't make it. He doesn't have the energy. He's got to do a quarter of a million fl- wing flaps to get from Alaska to Hawaii. Uh, Dr. Werner Gitt uh, put this all together. I was looking at the charts and the mathematical answer. It was fascinating because it turns out the way they make it, this little bird picks up 80 grams. goes from 120 grams to 200 grams for the energy. And you can figure out the, consu- you know, the, the fuel consumption of the flight, and you discover it can't quite make it. It can't quite make it, but it does. How does it do it? It flies in formation. It saves 20% of the fuel by flying in formation, by rotating the lead to bird. Just like a you know, race driver drafts, if you're familiar with that, same idea. So it's interesting. Uh, if you go through all the arithmetic, by flying in formation, he has six grams to spare for headwinds. See, there's no islands, and they can't swim. I mean, this is interesting. It's a 4,000-mile it's a thing. The real mystery to me is how does he know how to get there? <laughs> they have studied every conceivable thing you imagine the magnetic fields of the earth, the g- g- gravity, uh, stars. Uh, they, they, there's all kinds of theories. People have done their PhD, tried all kinds of theories, punctured every one of them. They have no idea, to my knowledge. I, I hope I get surprised and find out. I'm really how on earth they navigate. They've been studying like crazy because they think maybe they'll discover some other additional aids to navigation. How they don't, they don't know. And they're, bur- and they're born with this knowledge built into them somehow. God put it there. And the, the flight of birds, all these different birds have different origins, go different places. How do they navigate? No one knows. Not by, the, what's interesting about this one, see, there's no, there's no visual cues. Not, not across the, not from Alaska to Hawaii across the ocean with no islands. How do they get there? Stars? Hey, there's overcast. You know, I mean, there's all kinds, of, everything, everything you come up with has been punctured by, as they try to pursue this. So Matthew 10, 9, 29, Jesus says, uh, are there not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father knowing. 
But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, for ye are much more valuable than many sparrows. But how interesting, God watches over everything. Not a sparrow can fall to the ground without his knowing. All these are for the pleasure of God. Well, we finally get to uh, Job 40. And we'll only take a few verses here, and you'll see why in a minute. Um, we're going to make it. My engineer's nervous because we're getting close to the trail here. Uh, Job chapter 40, verse 1, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? Now, are you going to instruct God? Where were you? You weren't even there. How can you instruct God? See, this is all derivative from, from Job's challenge of some of the things, you know, what God's doing here. You see? Shall he contendeth with the Almighty, uh, that contendeth with the Almighty, instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. See, well, Job, are you uh, able to argue with God? How have you done with this examination? How many questions did you answer? I won't ask you guys for a show of hands. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer, yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. See, Job's really in fact saying, Yes, I'm not in your league. I'm out of my depth. So Job is silenced, but God isn't finished. He's just getting warmed up here. Verse 6, Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also annul my judgment? That's the root thing here. This is all preamble. Wilt thou condemn me, thou that mayest be righteous? See, God now brings this whole thing into moral judgment, into discussion. He, he invites Job now to mount the throne of God and, as it were, uh, see what he would do if he was in God's shoes, so to speak. Verse 9. Hast thou an arm like God? Canst thou thunder like a vo- uh, with a voice like him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold everyone that is proud, and abase him. See, now God puts his finger on the problem that is really in Job's heart. Can he handle the proud? Verse 12, look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. If you know, if you can handle these things, then you might be able to handle your own problem and give yourself victory that you previously claimed. And this is all preamble because now he's getting really warmed up and we're going to go into that next time. We've left, he's talked, we've talked about ten animals. There's two left. These two animals are really interesting animals. So next time, we're going to talk about dinosaurs and dragons. And the question you might be mulling over this, have you heard the legends of these fire-breathing dragons, the Chinese and other legends? Are they myth? Or are they relics from a true, true relics from an ancient past? So, okay, we've got the behemoth and the leviathan. Behemoth is the land animal. Leviathan is the sea animal. Many commentators try to say, well, they're a crocodile. They have all these weird theories. They don't fit the text at all. Forget that nonsense. These creatures are real creatures at the time, living and breathing a God that God could talk to Job about because he knew what they were. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about them. But that doesn't finish the subject because why... Are these two animals, why do they have 44 verses dedicated to them? More than all the other 12 animals put together. 
What's going on here? Why are these two creatures so prominent in the Word of God? Is there something else brewing here? Stay tuned. We'll keep that next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Next time we get together, you might want to bring your kids. Kids seem to love dinosaurs. We are going to talk about dinosaurs. We'll probably have some graphics. We'll probably use PowerPoint next time, James. I'll probably have a few slides I'm going to show up. But it should be fun. It should be a fun time. And that will leave the last session, the next session after that, to wrap up the whole book. And that also will, I think, have some surprises. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just praise you. We thank you that you've given us such a treasure, your word. We thank you too, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you've revealed your word to us. We thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ, for we do have a Redeemer that lives and ever makes intercession for us. We thank you, Father, that we are in such an incredible position, thanks to your initiative and your caring and your provision. But, Father, we do really understand that we cannot understand these things without you, without your Holy Spirit revealing it to us. We thank you, Father, that you've made us sensitive to the majesty of your creation and the innumerable mysteries that it still contains. We thank you, Father, that you have chosen us. By your initiative, you've loved us before we've loved you. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would increase in each of us a hunger and an appetite for your word, increase our capacity to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and all our mind. We do pray, Father, that you would help each of us to be more responsive to your will in our lives, to trust you more, Father, completely, as we commit ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time. As we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music